Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. Hello and welcome to Multifamily Investing Made Simple, the podcast that's all about taking the complexity out of real estate investing so that you can start taking action today. I'm your host, Anthony Vecino of Invictus Capital, joined as always by my partner, Dan Kruger. You've been working on that intro, man. That's good. I did. Yeah, I was listening back on the episode that we did with Ruben Greth, and he like... He showed me up so hardcore with his big announcer's voice. It's not, but I'm working on it. Ruben, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you, Billy. So Dan, I'm really psyched about today's conversation. We have an excellent guest joining us, John Blanton. He is a successful sales executive with over 10 years of experience supporting enterprise technology clientele. He has had many successful investment exits and continues to grow his holdings within the multifamily commercial space. He has a passion for gaining financial independence and helping others get there through investment cash flow. His mission is to help others perform through due diligence on real estate and business opportunities to ensure top-performing risk-adjusted returns. We love those risk-adjusted returns. John recently launched a podcast, and it's fantastic. It's called Contrarian Cashflow, interviewing some of the best within investing and entrepreneurship on the journey to a fulfilled life. So Dan, you ready for this? I'm ready. I've been ready. Okay. So you get to do the announcer voice this time. And then when you do, John's going to come run through the smoke and the haze and the lasers. So on, on the count of three, I'm expecting a good, no, I'm just kidding. John, come on. Do a, I was thinking more of like <laughs> a really deep, I don't know if this is killing the audio, but just something <laughs> ominous. John Blanton. No, that sounds good. It's kind of like that. What is it? The ASMR? It was like kind of like making my brain stem tingle a little bit. It feels yeah, like I can't hear it on your end. Skull. It's probably horrible for the listeners. Absolutely mm-hmm. horrible. So I won't do John, what'd you think? Did, you, did it sound good? I was going to say, I was just going to let you guys keep going <laughs> at go this. On for I, mean, hours. <laughs> I don't even know why I need to be here. <laughs> What's up, Good guys? Thanks for being here, John. Yeah, man. Super stoked. Appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. So, John, just real quick, real high level, just give us the breakdown. Who is John Blanton? Why is he here? Why are we talking to this guy? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know why you guys invited me on. That's uh, that's a great question. Uh, no, I'll level, answer that I mean, after I'm, you. Uh, high level. Uh, yeah, live here in North Carolina. I've got a beautiful family, wife, two daughters, uh, extremely fortunate. Uh, I try to be hardworking. I try to really reach out and help others because I feel like I've gotten a, a lot of hands up. And uh, other than that, I'm, you know, I'm hungry. Uh, I'm motivated and always looking at deals either, you know, through my sales career or through real estate or other investments. So that's kind of me, 10,000 foot view. Yeah. And I want to go ahead and just let the audience know why we brought John on. Like John's I'm familiar to me from LinkedIn is where he came across my radar initially. And John is just a great connector of people. He's always giving. He's got great insights. He's a thoughtful uh, investor. And he's been on the active side. He's been on the passive side. So he understands both sides of that spectrum. And he brings just a ton of wisdom and perspective because of that. And so I think it's going to be a really great episode where we can really benefit from your years of experience. So with that said, share your years of wisdom right now and tell us 
your worst investing advice? Yeah. So I think the worst advice is not having a strategy for what the investment is doing, right? So you have your investment portfolio. Of course, not everything, at least in my opinion, should be high risk, right? You need to kind of look at the portfolio and understand where things are at. Conversations that I have with too many investors, I don't think people have a good understanding of what their ultimate outcome is, right? Are you looking to step away from a career or a job? Are you looking to have income in retirement? Because a lot of people see this 401k and they're like, hey, I need a million dollars in my 401k when I'm 65 and I'm going to be set. Well, but then at that point, what do you do with that million dollars? That million dollars, you know, if you take that as distributions annually, you know, it's going to dry up pretty fast and who knows what, you know, healthcare costs are going to be in, you know, 30 or 40 years or whatever the case is. So I think the, the worst advice is if you don't have a plan getting into these investments and kind of have a, a long-term outcome goal, I think you're going to be in, in deep trouble. So don't just jump into an investment expecting it to, you know, cure cancer uh, or COVID, I guess, in this case. <laughs> oh man, if only. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a good investment, man. If you can get a, if you can get an investment to get a curing COVID. If you can get in on some like COVID <laughs> vaccinations right now, if you if you can pick the right horse to back, you're going to do pretty well. I'm betting. But this is something that Dan and I we we're big fans of. We talk a lot about is starting with the outcome in mind, understanding what's your desired end state, and working back from there. A lot of investors that we talk to, they. You know, we were, talk- we were talking before we went live on this episode, and it's the fact that a lot of investors don't even know what they're looking for in terms of a return, right? And if you don't know something as basic as that, then it's going to be really hard for you to pick the right horse to get on that's going to lead you to the desired destination if you don't even know what that destination is. Yeah, it's not enough to just identify real estate as the asset class that you like. Beyond that, to your comment on risk, John, people need to be aware of whether or not the deal they're getting into is something that's really cash flow heavy and would be great for someone maybe with a lower risk profile that's not looking for a lot of appreciation, but they're looking for high yield. That would be great for someone who's older and you know more so living off of the income as opposed to trying to generate new wealth. And then there's the the younger investor who might be in their 30s. You know They still have a job. They might not really care as much about the annual cash on the front end. They might want to get something that's really going to pop and provide them uh, with more appreciation and equity. So there's within the real estate, you know, umbrella, there's going to be deals that fall on the, you know, high cash flow side or high yield side, or maybe somewhere in between. And people need to realize, you know, which is the best one for them. Someone going into retirement, I wouldn't expect them to jump into like a ground up development where there's no cash flow for the first few years. And then you just hope that at that fifth year, things are still panning out. That's, that would be pretty high risk for someone who's 75 years old and looking to live off their dividends. So and I think your point is so great. I mean, I think the personal aspect of it's important, right? You know, I can't come to you and say, what's a good return, right? That's going to mean a different thing to, to a different person, right? And so I think your point around risk tolerance, and I think that's what people need to understand too, is even if you could hit a 20% annualized return or 25% annualized return, are you going to be able to deal with the ebbs and flows of, of how the asset's performing, right? You know, that unfortunately in the market that we're in now, not not that it's not always competitive, but right now with interest rates and cap rates, you know, everything kind of going through the race to the bottom, I guess, um, you know, getting yield and, and getting returns out of investments is more difficult now than it, you know, than it has been in, in the recent future and so our recent past. And so I think that point's tremendous. It's just the person needs to define with themselves, within themselves, of what return profile are they looking for and are they comfortable with that uh, in regards to a risk profile for the, the particular investment. Yeah, it's, it's all about how you make your money matters. It matters a lot. If you're making your money 
in this really risky, volatile environment where the ups and downs, you know, one day it's up 20%, next day it's down 20%, next day it's up 50%, then it's down 200%. But at the end of it, you make a million dollars. That's a very different way to make your money than a nice, solid, stable. Every year it just keeps chugging away. It's, it doesn't really lose money. It just keeps growing. And for you as an individual, you got to understand, like, what's your what's your personality? Like, can you sleep at night knowing that you might wake up in the morning and it'd be down 40%? Or are you going to freak out and, like, you know, lick? liquidate at that point that's so you got to understand your personality and investor um, ability to just weather that so um, for you john when you first started your investment journey how how has it kind of changed from the beginning to now is it still the same have you learned some things along the way that have kind of adjusted your perspective and what it is that you're looking for yeah, so our, our journey kind of started a little bit uniquely. So, um, you know, my wife and I are fortunate. We do pretty well in our corporate careers. And so we were deemed high income through the, you know, through the whatever, the mechanics of it. So we have a non-discretionary or non-discriminatory 401k plan. So at the time we were, you know, happier than a pig in mud, you know, slinging away. We're like, okay, boom, 18 and a half every year, you know, into our 401k, you know, hey, we're doing it. The American dream, like, you know, we're getting there. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, by the way, so we work for a big company. We have a lot of contractors. And so obviously, you know, a lot of uh, lower, lower uh, paid, lower income workers. And so, you know, unfortunately, they don't have the ability to, to sock away as much into retirement plans and 401ks and things of that sort. So we went from, you know, whatever the maximum was to, hey, you can put in 3%, 4% a year, right? And so we just had a, a, this uh, extra amount of cash, you know, building up. And so we're like, well, what are we going to do with this? And of course, you know, real estate was something we had always kind of thought about. Obviously, everyone, oh, you should buy a rental property you know, obviously restaurants, gyms, those are kind of the other ones that, you know, like, oh, that sounds fun, you know, but we didn't know anybody. Uh, I worked in a gym previous, a private gym previously, and it was really challenging and the returns didn't seem as grand as, as, you know, as we were kind of targeting. And then uh, a lot of overhead there. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Particularly right now during COVID where they are running at what, 10% occupancy or zero Zero if you're a restaurant. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's how we started. I think just like most people looked at single family rentals, we looked at townhomes and then finally came across some condos. Uh, You know, at the time we're we're near the Raleigh Durham area. And uh, at the time, you know, it was still, it was still pretty competitive, but you could kind of get close to the 1% or a little bit above it. So we found some condos uh, near North Carolina State University here near downtown Raleigh uh, that ended up popping. And, you know, we jumped into a couple real quick, but then, you know, 12 months later, you know, they were 20 or 30% above what we had paid for them. And, you know, unfortunately at the time I was too ignorant to jump in more at the t- right then, but, you know, they've obviously gone up, you know, even more since then. Real quick. Yeah. Before you move on uh, from that point there, just for the listeners, you you, you mentioned something called the 1% rule, which um, is something that's, I think, primarily used in single family, not so much in larger multifamily. So can you tell people real quick what the 1% rule was that you referenced? Because that was kind of your, your trigger to say, oh, this is something that uh, might be a, a good deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I wasn't smart enough to kind of, you know, <laughs> create the rule or think of the rule. I think it's just kind of the most common term for people that are looking for single family rentals or smaller rental properties. So what it means is the purchase price you're paying for the asset, the and the monthly rent rate you get is at least 1% of the purchase price. So we'll just use round numbers. So say you're buying a property at $100,000. Of course, you're not paying for the entire property, but say the property value or the property contract price is $100,000. And then the monthly rental rate needs to be at least $1,000 on that property. And you know, as as the demand for single family rentals continues to grow, the, the prices of them go up, but the, the, uh, I know the, the, uh, rental rates are going up as well, but you know, those, those, they're kind of diverging, right. You know, the values are going higher. So it's basically a, 
it's a back of the envelope calc that you can kind of do without having a spreadsheet just to know if it's worth looking at, right? Like if you got that 1% uh, threshold hit, then it's probably a decent deal and anything above 1% is just better, right? You're basically getting it for, for cheap relative to the income it produces is what that's saying. I guess it's kind of like, yeah, like you said, like the back of the napkin way to to evaluate a multifamily deal. Hey, you know what, you know, what do we think we can, you know, get from a return profile on this? Okay, great. Or what would we offer? You know, I guess that would be the better, you know, idea of like, okay, market cap, NOI, boom, what's the, you know, what would we offer on this property? So that's kind of the easy way for rentals to say, hey, does it hit the 1% rule? Okay, I'll dig in a little bit deeper. Does it not? Okay, I'm probably going to move on to another one. So you saw those pop up, they kind of hit the criteria seems like it went well there. At, at what point did you kind of start shifting towards uh, larger properties? Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately it wasn't intentional at all. Right. I mean, so it was just, what happened was kind of back to almost the 401k plan and the idea, right? So the market got really competitive and we were just like, well, we got a broker, you know, she'll send us deals when she sees them and, and whatever. Right. So it wasn't like we were being very active or very intentional about it. It was just like, oh, okay, well, if she sees a deal, she'll send it to us. Uh, very naive, right? And so it went for about two, two and a half years where we didn't do anything. And so we were just plugging away, paying down the paying down the principal, you know, like, oh my gosh, we're gonna have no debt. We're like, we're we're gonna be golden, you know. And so we were just socking it away, you know, thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars a month. It was like boom, you know, just like clockwork. It was going great. We're like, oh shoot. So we ended up paying off one of them and we're like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. We have this free and clear. And then I look at the annual cash flow and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is trash. You know, like this is not good. So yeah, so it took a couple of years. And uh, so I got into private lending. You know, I was kind of like, I need to do something else with this, you know. So we got into private lending, did a deal, it worked out really well, but it just it wasn't as exciting for me. And you know, obviously you don't get the tax benefits from you know from the debt side that you do from the ownership side on the real estate. I did some flips that was extremely challenging, uh, made nowhere near what I expected to. Real quick, John, real, real quick for our audience. I don't know if we've really covered the the um, the debt lending side before. I don't know if you've ever had a guest that's really addressed that. Can you talk to that real quick for us? Yeah. So I think it's actually a tremendous model. If you understand you know, construction costs, if you can find flippers in the area that you know and trust, I think it's a really great model. So, you know, I'll, I'll kind of share what my returns were on that. And, um, you know, hopefully that can kind of illuminate to the audience an idea of, of what you can look at from a return profile perspective. So he, he approached me. Um, he was referred to me by actually my, my broker at the time. She's still my bro. She's still one of my brokers. Right? I didn't get, we didn't kick her to the curb or anything, but um, so she, he was referred to me. And so it was this, is this property in East Wake County, kind of far out there, you know, podunk. And so he's like, Hey, I'm looking to flip this property. I need 135 grand to, to turn this property. That's all in cost. And I think it's going to be, so the rule that you want to try to look at is, you know, what's the ARV, what's the after repair value of the asset. Ideally you want to be all in between 65 and 70%. That's getting more and more challenging, obviously, as the market gets more competitive, but back to the rule of thumb, you know, so the purchase price plus the rehab costs, you want to be at about 65 to 70% of the purchase price. So I loaned him the money and he paid me 12% interest on that money. And then also two points. So, I mean, that's pretty substantial, right? So I, I didn't, so I didn't have to wire him the whole 135. I wired him 98% of 135, but he owed me 135 and he was paying me 12% monthly. So in about 65, 70 days, I made like five grand which that was great. But of course I was a, you know, wuss. So I had to get an attorney involved and have him drop all the documents. And that cost me, you know, a hundred, a thousand bucks or 1200 bucks, you know? So, um, you know, I just, I was trying to do it 
<laughs> so no, nothing wrong with being a yeah, wuss especially when you're doing your first one like that yeah right? so but anyway so so yeah so i mean the return profile is pretty strong and I, I, the best part about it is i think you're pretty collateralized the problem is you're not getting residual income throughout so kind of back to dan's point earlier about having um you know that residual income it wasn't like a hard money fund or anything like that that was going to pay me a dividend monthly, right? So I gave him the money and then I didn't get that money back until you know he turned and flipped that property and was able to exit it at sale. So at the sale, the closing of the property after he flipped it, that's when I, I received my proceeds. Um, but you know, usually that's a six to 12 month horizon, you know. So this one was fast, it was kind of a you know, quick lipstick and turn around and flip it. He had done a really good job finding the property. So, um, but yeah, I mean, not a bad return in, you know, in 65 days, but again, a, a pretty beast, big outlay, right. You know, that's not, um, for the faint of heart, you know, throwing out that type of cash there. Um, but I felt confident. Yeah. And typically you would do better if that individual would default on the loan. So really to get into this, you wouldn't have to know what to do with that property after the fact too. So if you don't have any idea of how to turn around and sell it or lease it or do something, the, you know, there's some extra risk there, but if you do know how to do those things, then the risk is fairly mitigated because your downside is he defaults on the loan and you would actually end up making more money. It would probably be a lot more work for you, but you'd actually come in better if they default on the loan. So from a risk profile, it's actually not too shabby, but to your point, it's probably a decent amount of administrative work. And, you know, if you're trying to you know, generate some serious income, you've got to have probably a lot of money laid out all at once to really have consistently good income. So if you've got 10, 15, 20 million or something and you want to do that at scale, it's not too shabby if you're making, you know, effectively what, at least 25 to 30% a year or something like that. Not a bad deal, but. I've got a lot of investors that I work with down here and, and, you know, they're kind of at that retirement age. And so what they do is they kind of cycle through loans, right? So maybe they have a pot of say seven or $800,000, right? So maybe they have, you know, four or five loans out at a time. And so, you know, as those come due and mature, you know, they're getting back, okay, 15, $20,000 or whatever the case is on, on those said loans. And so I think that's kind of a good strategy, you know, kind of from a long-term perspective, or I think it's great if you are using retirement money, that's where I think it's really good. You know, if you're using that retirement money because you can kind of delay those, yeah, those taxes an IRA or, anything or like something. That because yeah, twelve percent, um, you know, two points. I mean, that's pretty solid. I think my annualized return was you know somewhere around fifteen to seventeen percent, right? So I mean, that's not anything to sniff at. Yeah, actually, from a tra- from a tax perspective, that's actually kind of the perfect deal for an IRA account, realistically, given the tax treatment of those things, especially if it's like a Roth or something like that, then geez, just go crazy. I mean, it's all tax free within the Roth and you could be a private lender and just lend on behalf of your Roth and just have it all go through there. I know a lot of guys who do that pretty heavily. So it's, it's not a bad use of capital if you have all those connections and you actually do know what to do with that property if it ends up uh, in your possession, if someone defaults or something. So that's very interesting. So I did that and then I did the flips and you know that that was going well I learned a lot right so I mean I think that's the biggest thing through all this I learned a lot I partnered on two of them one of them I didn't realize at the time was kind of just that not the same individual. I was partnering with somebody else. Um, one of them was kind of that lipstick, you know, just real quick, boom, get in, get out, paint, floor, new appliances, stainless steel, do the bathrooms up and be done. And, you know, I was like, oh, that's a flip. But, you know, those are really uncommon now, right? For the most part, those are getting snatched up and it probably even selling retail. I mean, that one was a HUD uh, foreclosure, but um, in general, you know, a lot of those properties just because the demand for single family housing is so high are selling retail at this point in time. So I did the flips and I didn't make as much there. And then I just, I was talking to brokers about smaller multifamily deals, you know, duplexes through 10 units, 15 units. 
and I just really wasn't getting anywhere. So um, being the stubborn salesperson that I am, I was like, let me go to list source. Let me just, let me just feel this out. You know, let me see what's going on out there. So started cold calling a bunch of people, uh, ended up getting a guy uh, just a little bit outside of the triangle, kind of towards the Greensboro area that had 12 units. It was, it was uh, two duplex or yeah, two duplexes and then two quads. And uh, older guy, construction guy, kind of, you know, retiring. I was like, oh man, maybe this is kind of that person, you know, like we were talking about before. And, um, you know, he's pretty savvy though. And those things were just beat to, you know, they were trash, right? They were total trash. I mean, and, and now even looking back, I mean, they probably going to need at least 10 grand a unit and the upside in rents just wasn't there. So, um, but I was excited. So I sold one of my condos and because the market here is so strong in Raleigh, it just sold, it sold in less than 24 hours, you know, five grand over list, all cash, you know, Connecticut buyer. And so, you know, so what happened was I had that money, the QI that was doing my 1031. So I guess, so qualified intermediary. So they're the ones that hold a lot of this money. So if you sell a property and you're looking to 1031 to defer those taxes, the QI or qualified intermediary is the one that actually holds those like in trust, right? Because if, if you touch that money, the IRS is going to, is going to hit you with taxes and capital gains and whatever, you know, whatever the tax amounts that you have against that. So he introduced me to a DST broker, a Delaware statutory trust. So they're kind of just these, you know, pseudo syndication type deals. So I did one of those, right? I was just like, you know, this mailbox money, I've never heard of it. Or I've heard of it, but I've never done it before. And so it ended up being an industrial deal up in Pennsylvania. At the time, I didn't know anything about industrial, but I was like, oh, recession, it's a cold storage building for Chick-fil-A and McDonald's. I'm like, hey, you know, recession happens, people are going to be hit, you know, people are going to be hitting up, uh, you know, fast food. Seems like a good bet. Well, cold storage has gone crazy. I mean, so I, I didn't realize at the yeah, time, places cold do storage better, is honestly, super niche, so. right? And that's- <laughs> When recession so, so the business plan and the exit on that deal is they said that there's an extra parcel of land there that they're going to redevelop and actually expand the facility. And then that's going to be their exit in five years or whatever like that. So, but yeah, that was kind of my first foray into the mailbox money and the larger deals and being a passive investor. And that's in, that's extremely passive. You know, they don't even talk to me or care to talk to me, right? That's not really the, it's just like, you know, they look, it's kind of like a bond. You know, that I heard that- uh, <laughs> <laughs> that terminology this week, uh, you know, the triple net, double, you know, net deals, net lease deals are kind of like a bond wrapped in real estate is how they define it. So, you know, the return profile isn't very strong. It's like, I think a 7% cash on cash, but it's consistent. I mean, that's the coolest thing is every month that just boom, pings my account. And, you know, I, I really like those monthly distributions, but yeah, that's how I started getting into some of the larger assets. That's great. I love it. And just so people know, I, you threw out the uh, the DSTs there for a moment there. Um, that's a tool that we've used before. I did that on my second deal. I came across a seller who wanted to get out of actively owning real estate, but didn't want to pay the tax. Um, and so a lot of people aren't aware that these DSTs exist and they're a great spot for those individuals uh, to go. If someone, if, you, if anyone encounters a seller or something like that, that doesn't want to take the tax hit and also doesn't want to go out and buy another property for themselves, those DSTs are a great option for them to slide their money into, keep getting the mailbox money, like you said, but be completely removed from the process of going out and shopping for more properties. And they're class A properties. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, this is, this is a state of the art building, you know, and I'm sure, you know, one of the other ones they're looking at, you're looking at, I mean, the majority of the class A, I mean, a lot of the new developments that are around here are rolling into DSTs. They're very low leverage. They're like 50 to 55% leverage. So they're extremely conservative. And so that's kind of why the returns aren't, you know, 15, 20% is because they're extremely conservative. But to your point, I think it's a great option for somebody that's just looking for yield consistency and, and needing that income to, to live off of. Yeah, I look at it as an option for someone who just wants to avoid the tax hit, not necessarily like at that point caring about how much money they're going to make. They're just trying to not pay the tax. So it's a great place to just park something for maybe three, five years. And then when that 
you know, deal matures and there's an exit or some kind of capital event. At that point, you can kind of reevaluate what you want to do, go back into a DST, go back get active, or maybe just take the tax that hit then. But it, it buys you time if you're trying to 1031 something. Yeah. Or to just to bring this full circle, you know, at the beginning of the episode, John, you're talking about really understanding the outcome, right? And saying, what type of investment are you looking for? And the DST can be a really great option if you're getting close to retirement and you're looking for something that is just going to keep pinging your, your, your inbox every month with 7% cash on cash. And, you know, to the, the tax deferral standpoint, like that can be a really great option for that person, which is fundamentally a different type of investor than the, maybe the, the person who's doing the fix and flips like you were doing or buying the condos or, you know, lending on the note with the chance of maybe collateralizing on the property if it defaults, right? Those are very different types of investors. So it's really interesting because you've, you've, you kind of span the full gamut. You've, you've done it all. But were you actively thinking as you were doing this, like, like, oh, I'm changing my goals, or was it more kind of happenstance looking over and saying, oh, there's an opportunity and kind of pursuing that? And if that's the case, if you were to go back, would you do it differently or would you play the game the same way? Yeah, uh, I think I thought you were trying to pick on me there a little bit. Yeah, it was entirely unintentional. Uh, entirely unintentional. Um, so would I go back and change it? Probably not, because I feel like I've learned so much. And I think that's no. <laughs> I think that's the challenge with newer investors in general is you do have to make a lot of mistakes. And you know, thankfully, none of my mistakes have been huge. I mean, I've lost. You know, we had a property manager that was stealing from us. That was twelve thousand dollars. You know, of course, like I said, I mean, I've had contractors rip me off. I've lost tens of thousands of dollars to contractors. And, you know, it just, it is what it is, right? You know, if you don't want to, if you don't, can't stand the heat, don't get in the kitchen. Right. But so, yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge now is I think I'm trying to expedite my curve and build my net worth to a point that I could potentially put it into just, you know, opportunities that just kick off yield. And, but since I'm younger and still trying to grow that, that, you know, that reserves, the capital, all that stuff. I think looking back, yeah, do those investments all meet the criteria of what I'm looking for from a return profile? No. The challenge that I'm running into now is when you have too much liquidity and you have nowhere to put it, what do you do, right? I mean, do you just kind of kick the can down the road and say, okay, well, I know inflation is eroding the buying power of these dollars, but who's to say this deal doesn't come along? And so I think that's the challenge that I'm facing right now is knowing if I did an active deal on my own, I could make way more money than I could if I was investing in one of these passive deals. But how much am I, how long am I going to wait for that active deal to come along? Because we all know how competitive the market is right now. So that's something that I continue to struggle with. And, you know, if you guys have any great insight, <laughs> all, all ears, but, um, but yeah, man, I mean, so looking back, would I do it differently? No, because I think I learned a ton moving forward. Would I do it differently? Absolutely. But I'm still in the challenge now of, you know, hey, what if I just parked a little bit? Because again, back to the inflation point, you know, I think things are really going to start taking off here pretty soon just with the, you know, with the, the amount of spending from the government and the way interest rates are just remaining so low. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different things you could do in that department. I mean, it, it, to your point, it's it's always going to come back to personality as well. There's probably a, a good chunk of people out there who don't mind sitting on cash knowing that they're essentially paying, you know, somewhere between two and 5% a year in inflation tax that is eroding their 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 purchasing power. I mean, personally, I, I probably wouldn't mind doing that for like the next 12 months knowing what I, given our insights into the industry, I feel like there's going to be plenty of opportunities over the next six to 12 months. So I'd, I'd gladly pay that tax in the short term, knowing that it's going to be able to be deployed. Cause I'd hate to go and lock it up in something like a, you know, uh, 
like a DST or something like that, where, yeah, you're making seven, eight percent, but hey, are you going to miss out on a tremendous opportunity because you didn't want to pay that inflation tax for a year? It's kind of, it's it's tough and it really depends on the personality, I would say. And then there's, you know, stuff you could do with the life insurance too, if you've looked into that. Again, it comes down to personality. That's an option for some people. They like it. For me, it's like, I did it once when we had a policy that was given to us by grandparents and it was a great resource for that. Now the question is, would I start a new policy with that intention? I haven't yet. So that kind of answers that question, but a lot of people love it. So there's, there's another little option if you wanted to consider something like that, but <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty far. That's funny that you mentioned that. Cause I'm pretty far down that path. So, I mean, you know, I read Nelson Nash's book and of course talked to, you know, a thousand different brokers. And so I'm, I'm the type of person that I really want to educate myself and at least have a good understanding. Of course, you know, I'm not going to be fully competent on the topic. And it's funny, the more brokers I talk to, I feel like I probably know more about life insurance now than a lot of them, not to brag, just it's extremely complicated. And, you know, and yeah. uh, the amount of time I've spent talking to, to different brokers and understanding the process, but yeah, it just goes back to that personal, you know, conviction of what are you really looking for and what's the outcome that you want? Like you said, you're willing to pay that inflation tax. So my challenges that I struggle with working with myself is I'm a sales guy, right? So I'm a deal junkie. So I just want to close a deal. So, you know, so there's still that drive and motivation to be like, okay, I I can wait, be patient, make sure that I'm investing the money in a deal that meets that criteria, but it's still, it's still going to be a painful thing every day, right? Everyone, every time a deal hits my inbox, I'm like, man, I need to do this deal, right? <laughs> I need to get in, I need to get in the game. So, but I mean, that's just something that I continue to, to work on personally and learn throughout myself, within myself is what do I need to do to make sure that my investments truly are aligning with my long-term outcomes, like Anthony said, because I think that's a mistake that I've made in the past. Not a, not a, you know, not a mistake I can't come back from, but just a mistake that I've made. Yeah. I know the feeling you get trigger happy if you've got dry powder and you just want to get in and having someone, you know, whether it's a um, partner or a mentor or some kind of third party to kind of check your, your underwriting on deals to make sure that you're not overly in love with the deal and plug it in some unrealistic parameters to try to make it work. I think is hugely powerful because we tend to do that when we get an opportunity, the more we dig into it, the more we kind of get attached to it and we start to try to sell ourselves on it. And that could be a slippery slope. So having like a third party or even paying an analyst just to underwrite something for you and seeing how different their outcome is. Maybe spend a couple hundred bucks and just see, like, am I getting too ambitious about this or is this really a good deal? That might not be a bad idea. That can be really exacerbated when you have, like you're mentioning, a lot of dry powder sitting around because it's money burning a hole through your pocket and you feel this pressure. Like at a certain point, maybe these returns aren't that good, but you know something's better than nothing. And just keeping my money over here where it's it being eroded over time, well, maybe I should just do this deal. And you kind of talk yourself into these things. Going back to your question, though, I think it's a really critical one and maybe one that we can spend a little bit time maybe unpacking together as a group is this question of being active versus being passive and the distinction there. Like we, we've, we've harped a lot on like the personality. Some people are going to be more inclined to be active and some people just have no interest in dealing with to, uh, tenants, toilets or trash or any of that stuff. And so like, nope, that's not that's not for me. But a lot of enough people are kind of like split in the middle. They're like, I could do this. I could go active. I could also go passive. Like and so they're left kind of wondering, well, which one should I do? Like, what do you guys think for that person who's kind of at the middle of the road, they could go either way. Like what, how, how should they be viewing these opportunities and thinking through that? Yeah. For me, it comes down to the amount of time they have. Right. So that's the only, you know, I think that's the most important resource any of us have, and there's nothing we can do to create more of it. And so that person needs to look at themselves and say, do I have a family? How many hours a week am I working in my job or how many hours a week do I have available to do these other opportunities? And I think that's the most important thing that they need to look at first and foremost. Right. I think kind of back to the dry powder analogy about 
about, you know, burning a hole in your pocket. Well, same thing with like, you know, the squirrel, right? You know, you're like, oh gosh, like here's the new next shiny object. I need to go chase it. So I think, again, more than anything, I think the person needs to look internal and, you know, introspectively and say, hey, how much time do I have? And is this something I can actually put time and energy in knowing that the ROI is going to be, you know, miserable short-term, right? You know, we all know how challenging it is to get in the game and, and get something across the line. I mean, fortunately, we've all been able to push something across the line in COVID, but, you know, I'd say that we're definitely in the minority there, right? The majority of folks are still trying to, to pull out their first deal throughout COVID and that's not a knock on them. That's just the reality. Transaction volumes have slowed. And so I think, you know, just in general, that's the biggest question I have more than anything is how much time do you have available? Um, the second one is risk tolerance, right? And I think that's the one that people get really caught up on too, is I'm a sales guy, right? So, I mean, I'm already, you know, I'm kind of already riding the emotional roller coaster as it is anyway, right? I mean, I'm going to make 25% less this year than I made last year. I mean, through, in my mind, no fault of my own, uh, you know, but, um, you know, whatever within COVID and the economy, the way that it is now, but I mean, that's just the nature of the beast being in sales, right? And so I think that just goes back to the amount of time you can spend and then, you know, the, the risk profile that you have because being active, the upside is way greater, right? No one's going to argue that. But also the emotional aspect, you know, are you going to be stressed out every day and speaking differently to your spouse, to your children, to your coworkers? How is it going to impact your life on that perspective? And that's, I guess that's kind of how I look at it and what I would have people kind of look at themselves and understand what makes the most sense for the route them to take. Yeah, And something else that gets- yeah. And you're, you're mentioning some, some stuff there. I'm sorry, uh, Dan, I'm just, uh, I have something more important to say. Uh, uh, well, I can't compete with that I if, just, if it's less important. <laughs> no. Well, I, I just want to touch on this because I think a lot of times when people think about being an active investor, they underestimate how long it can really take to get traction, to get that first or second or third deal. And I think in the community, we hear a lot about like, oh, just get that first deal done. And then every everything else will just kind of fall into place. You'll get that momentum. But it can take a long time, a lot of no's, a lot of frustration before you ever get that first deal. Yeah, A lot of money. A lot of money. I mean, that's the other thing too. It costs a lot. I mean, so my, when I was chasing these deals before I spent at least yep. $12,000 chasing deals, right? my wife's like, what are you doing? Yep. You're coming up dry. <laughs> you can't close the deal. No, you know, should you be no, doing that's, this? That's so, sorry to cut in, but yeah, I thought that was a yeah. funny part of it. It's a big one too. Yeah, we just closed a deal a few weeks ago and we've been hunting. You know, obviously COVID kind of extended that a little bit. There was a period where there weren't many transactions, but we were still effectively out there hunting and working on trying to find deals from right after we closed our last deal in January until we closed our most recent one about three weeks ago. And, you know, we didn't get paid for any of that work that was done there. We looked at tons of deals. We put out offers. We got really close on a ton of them. But, you know, it, it isn't until something closes that you actually start to get paid. And even then, it's not going to be huge on that first deal. So that's important for people to realize. And Dan and I were putting in full-time hours, you know, doing that, looking for the deals and talking to brokers and forging those relationships. And so if you're working a full-time job and you're trying to do this on the side, maybe part-time in the evenings, like that's there's nothing to say that that can't work and that you can't do it. Just know that it's going to take longer and that your runway needs to be adjusted a little bit. So I think these are all like really important questions to answer for yourself when it comes to, do you want to be passive or can I even be active? The intentionality of it too is yeah. Go for oh, it. Real quick, before I forget, I just wanted to get this in for the listeners, because I think it's a point that uh, goes unnoticed by a lot of people. And that's, it's not necessarily a binary question where you're either active or passive. For a lot of people, there's opportunities to kind of ease your way into actively investing by way of working with partners. So it's not a binary jump from you working a full-time W-2 job, then quitting, and then on Monday, all of a sudden, you and you alone are out hunting for deals. You can start to get actively involved 
on a part-time basis by participating in less active ways in other deals, i.e. finding a deal, maybe kind of doing a bird dog type thing, um, helping raise capital. You could sign on the loan if you've got a really good balance sheet um, and maybe some capital to throw into the risk money, like the earnest money or something like that. So there's a lot of ways that you can participate actively that don't necessarily eat up a ton of time. And you could easily do in the evenings and weekends while you kind of build up that track record and get integrated. And then once you find out, hey, this is a good fit, I actually do enjoy it. I do want to quit and go full time, then it's not quite so binary. Then you've got a system kind of built up that you can confidently get into and and, uh, just take more seriously at that point. Well, I just, the last thing to build on that as well is, and I think a lot of people have a lot more time at their disposable than they realize and that they're willing to admit. Right. So, but, but if you, your phone tells you now that screen time, if you really want to, if you, (laughs) if you really want to do this and do it right, you know, you're going to have to say (laughs) no to other things, right. You're going to have to educate yourself. That's going to be a time commitment, podcasts, reading, networking. You got to turn off Netflix. Unfortunately, you got to stop binging, right? You know, you, know yeah. you can't keep watching Tiger King over and over again or, or whatever, whatever you're, whatever you're checking out. So that would be the other thing. After the third time, let me just tell you, it loses a little bit of its luster. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think people have more time in the day than they want to give, give it credit. And I think they're usually wasting time on tasks that are unnecessary or unimportant to them. And so kind of back to that, you know, defining what's important to you, I'd go back and just really say, you know, really break your day down and say, how much time am I spending? Like you said, Netflix or, or, on social media or or aspects that aren't returning the value that I want. And you really have to be intentional within that to make sure that you can squeeze that time out and then actually get that return. Like you talked about from the active perspective or even, even passive, you know, I don't really, I don't love the word passive for investing because I mean, I think there's so much due diligence that needs to be done on the front end. And so I know passive versus active. I know there's not really a better term than that, but I mean, just as far as vetting the operator and vetting other things. And so I think that's, that's a big thing is even being a passive investor, if you're just doing it and just throwing money over the fence and hoping that it comes back to you, I think that's risky. So even if you're trying to be passive, it's going to take a lot of educating yourself. It's going to take a lot of networking. It's going to take a lot of understanding kind of like Dan talked about earlier and, you know, having an analyst, you know, help underwrite the deal or, you know, you need to at least have a good understanding of like, Hey, what's the debt look like on this property or, or what's the exit plan? Does that even make sense? You know, within, you know, their debt parameters and with their, you know, construction budget and all these different things. There's so many factors that you need to to really understand, even as a passive. And so, um, you know, I think that's... Well, the nice part about that is I think for the passive folks, for the most part, the vast majority of the work is on the front end and getting up to speed with the business model. And then after, I'd say the first year to two years, once you've kind of identified a few key operators that you like, and you're able to look at a deal and understand it within a few minutes, maybe ask three, four questions and you're good to go. At that point, I mean, the due diligence per deal is, you'd probably know better than me, but maybe an hour or two. And that's maybe a couple times a year. Um, obviously, when you're first getting into this, you have to like learn about how the whole business model works. And that's kind of time intensive. But once you put in your initial time learning about it, I think the the time commitment going forward actually is pretty minimal. Um, yeah, it's a lot from so. That's a great point. Yeah, this reminds me of Steve Jobs when he was quoted as saying something to the effect of I'm more proud of the things that we've said no to than the things we've said yes to. And it's really understanding that everything that you're saying no to is actually saying yes to something else. It's it's making a vote of I'm choosing not to do Netflix or this other thing or, you know, and that could be in- investing and in like not getting the shiny 
object syndrome and saying no to this thing because I'm going to maintain my focus over here on this other thing that I deem more important. So I think that's a great maybe spot to end off that part of the conversation because that was, I think, just just a, a lot to unpack and hopefully brought a lot of value to you guys at home that are listening to this. But uh, John, why don't you go ahead and give us your, your book recommendation of the week? You did mention a book there before, I think Nelson Ash, uh, he had a book maybe on life insurance. I don't know if I've ever read that, but for people at home that are interested in life insurance, is that something that they should look at? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the life insurance thing, I think is extremely interesting, right? I I guess I'll just do a really high level. So the the reason that I'm interested in it more than anything is, so if you put money into the, into the policy, you get paid a dividend. You're like a guaranteed a a certain dividend rate, but I mean, or you're guaranteed a dividend, but it's, you know, it's a variable rate, but you can take those proceeds as return on capital versus, you know, a distribution, right? So it's a tax-free asset, right? And you can build it up and put money into it and then in turn use it to leverage your own personal money and take loans out of the policy or use the policy as collateral. And so I guess that's the biggest thing for me is the tax benefits of it long-term. But yeah, so it's called Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. And uh, it's a really short book. Um, Honestly, one of the um, brokers ended up sending it to me and I I really enjoyed it. I read it in like two days. It's not very long. It's like 115 pages or something like that. Really interesting. A lot of, you know, graphs and kind of breakdowns of, of what it looks like. And at a minimum, it was just showing how much money you would make different if you bought a bought a, a car, just a personal car, cash every time out of your policy, paid your policy back versus, you know, getting a loan from the from the bank or from the dealership and buying the car. So at the at the minimum, that's what I feel like I'm probably going to do is at least buy a policy. So I at least buy cars out of it. Um, but yeah, the book's very insightful and uh, I really enjoyed it. All right, I, I kind of pigeonholed you into that one. What's your what's your other book recommendation? So that you, it doesn't have to be life insurance. It can be any book, any any book at all that's moved the spirit recently. <laughs> yeah, you got some. You had a couple back there, I can see. Yeah, so I actually um, I'm getting my way through Russell Brunson Expert Secrets. So uh-huh. uh, I'm a I'm a sales guy, so I'm just really stubborn. You know, bang your head against the wall, right? There's not really a method to the madness. It's just hey, I'm going to work harder. <laughs> not smarter. And so I'm really trying to get my marketing game up in regards to just personal branding and just getting out there more. Um, you know, the best part about it is probably as you guys have seen too, it's like the more you talk, you know, the more people want to listen and you actually have interesting things to say. So that'd be kind of the the biggest thing for the audience. Um, I know we'll talk about it here in a second around the podcast and stuff, but that was something I never thought I would be doing. And the response I've gotten from it and what it's allowed me to do in terms of networking and just, you know, interacting with other people at a different level, it's tremendous. And so that would be the biggest thing is just from a personal branding and marketing perspective. He talks a lot about, you know, fishing in those blue waters versus red waters, right? Red waters are where the sharks have kind of ripped apart everything and it's all bloody because, you know, there's tons of businesses that are doing in, in that segment. Whereas you want to try to find those blue waters, um, you know, that are out there that, uh, that you have a little bit more area to kind of, you know, create your own domain and, and customer base. That's awesome. Yeah, I have uh, .com secrets sitting over here. I've read it a couple of years ago. I bring it out every now and then when I'm just trying to sharpen up my, my saw a little bit. So that's fantastic, John. Where can people get a hold of you? I, I, I mentioned the Contrarian Cashflow podcast, which everybody, if you're go ahead and just push pause right now, go find it on iTunes and wherever uh, that you listen to your podcast and subscribe to it and preemptively leave a review and then listen and then come back and then you know maybe revise that review if you you know, not just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but where, where can, where can everybody get a hold of you? Yeah. <laughs> if it sucks, <laughs> <laughs> if it sucks, tell me. Yeah. If it sucks, be honest. Tell me. Uh, hey, 
all the reviews, good or bad, will help the algorithms. So we'll gladly take bad reviews on our I end. didn't know that. All right. Boom. <laughs> now learning something new. That um, is not coming from, from an expert. Somehow. Uh, I think. I don't know. On the algorithms. Yeah, so pretty excited. <laughs> we're just, we're, we just assume that. <laughs> we like engagements. Engagements, <laughs> engagement. Uh, it sounded good to me. He's got me sold. <laughs> exactly. Yep. That's our policy <laughs> any here. News, good new, any news is good news, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so pretty excited. I mean, just got the tied it in. So yeah, just contrariancashflow.com. You can go see all the episode list. Um, outside of that, so my business website is uh, Peak Capital GRP, Peak Capital Group, but peakcapitalgrp.com. And then obviously LinkedIn, uh, John Blanton. I think the, the slug is like Joe Blanton <laughs> or something like that. That used to be my username at <laughs> some company a while ago. So, um, but yeah, that's the best place to find me. And I mean, more than anything, I just really enjoy networking with people and, and learning and educating. And I feel like the more I learn, the more I learn about myself and kind of back to the point about the investments, right? You know, learning but through mistakes that I've made about what actually I'm trying to do and the outcomes that I ultimately want to accomplish. I love it. So John, want to say a huge thank you for again for being on the show. This was I I found it really entertaining. So hopefully the audience at home brought, uh, got a lot of value out of, out of it. And if you did, if you're listening to this, you're in the car, you're about to go into work, you're about to go into home or wherever, you're just listening to this on the treadmill. Stop what you're doing, get off the treadmill, pull out your phone, go over to iTunes, and now it's your turn to leave us a review. It doesn't have to be five stars like Dan says, but you know five stars feels better than three stars. So maybe five. We prefer five. So we prefer five. Go leave a review. <laughs> let us know how we're doing. Leave some feedback and we'll catch you next week, guys. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.